it, 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 it's obviously a sign that the drug's working, um, but it's a, a, a good sign for me that, um, you know, you see that respiratory rate fall and <clears throat> the shoulders kind of drop in the patient and then they just get that kind of, you know, that relaxed kind of smile on their face and they're in the middle of their contraction, but they are just cruising through the contraction. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, this week I have um, Mike Jemison, who who was a, a, a senior registrar uh, slash fellow from uh, Belfast, um, who was working with us up until a few weeks ago. Uh, so interesting topic uh, today uh, because um, because of Mike's background working in Belfast, um, we asked him to give us a talk to our department, and he is going to be presenting at the obstetric and aesthetic um, special interest group meeting in Sydney a little bit. Later on in this year, in a few months' time, uh, on this topic, which is, um, do you want to tell us the topic, Mike? Yeah. So the the topic that I'm going to be talking about is Remy Fentanyl PCA. Yep. Uh, safe uh, and sound, uh, or safe or sound. Yep. Um, so, so before you get going, so mm-hmm. I'm just going to let everyone know how we're going to do it. So I thought this is a really good topic, but rather than the traditional podcast format where we just sort of um, jump around all over the place I'm going to give um, Mike a bit of free reign and he's going to sort of it's almost a, a, a practice run for his talk uh, that's coming up in Sydney so he's going to um, just go through go through his talk and then I might ask him questions at various moments so um, go for it Mike <laughs> sorry I interrupted you already I no, said I'm no. not going <laughs> no it's all good um, well I, I mean bef- you know the, the straight up just to start, I, I want to reiterate that I am, uh, uh, number one, I've never had a baby. Uh, number two, <laughs> uh, I've never I've never used Remy Fentanyl. Um, uh, and number three, uh, I'm not even a, an internationally re- renowned professor uh, and I don't have any books published. But what I do have to tell you is that I, I am from Northern Ireland, which, as you've said, is, is one of the main centres that uses Remy Fentanyl PCA in the obstetric sense uh, globally yep. and is arguably one of the biggest users, or if not the biggest user in, in the world of this drug in the obstetric sense. So um, I suppose in that sense, I do have a, a bit more experience than, than some people. Um, so really, whenever I, I came over here to this amazing centre with, with you, Roger, and, uh, and the, the rest of the staff, I was, I was surprised to see that um, the, the King Eddie's don't really use Remy. Um, yeah. Um, you know, uh, as you said to me, it's, it's used in this centre under one once a month, um, despite, yeah. you know... I think sec- we used it 15 times last year. 15. And, and uh, I think in Australia that's considered a heavy user. <laughs> I, I, I find that really interesting uh, yeah. because, uh, uh, as I've said to you, coming from, from Northern Ireland, uh, um, one of our you know, typical peripheral hospitals, um, you know, we would prescribe the drug, you know, at least 60 times a month. Um, uh, and it's, in the Ulster Hospital, it's been prescribed over 11,000 times. Um, and just to put that in perspective, um, um, the Ulster Hospital would have, you know, around 4,000 deliveries a year. Um, yep. So, you know, a fair proportion of these patients would receive Remy fentanyl. Um, and, and it's just a normal part of our practice. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I was really 
surprised to see that the disparity in, in use you know when we look at Northern Ireland and compare it to not just Australia but um, the, the Western Australia um, because our populations aren't that dissimilar you know Northern Ireland has, has a similar population to, to Perth um, and as I yep. said one of our small centres um, would prescribe Remy fentanyl you know a lot more than, than anywhere else in, in this state never mind the country um, so I, I struggle to understand that disparity and I'm still struggling to, to kind of get the grips with that um, the drug itself it's not a new drug uh, it, it's been around for you know since 1996 when it was approved by the FDA um, and, and then it was rapidly used uh, in a patient controlled analgesia in 1999 by Jones um, and, and then you know that that uh, moved on in 2004 um, when when David Hill and, and the, the group in the Ulster Hospital, including Damien Hughes, um, decided to uh, to investigate its use further. Um, initially, it was thought that it should be used for only for patients who could only uh, who couldn't uh, have neuroaxial uh, analgesia, uh, mm-hmm. but. You know, after the initial studies by David Hill and, and Damien and the rest of the team, um, it's now widespread uh, and rapidly uh, um, adopted by by the whole department and, and the, now the whole of Northern Ireland. And it's it's now seen as a genuine analgesic option for for everyone, uh, yep. every labouring woman. Um, so it, it expanded rapidly rapidly in Northern Ireland, uh, but it hasn't really seen to to have evolved in anywhere else. Um, and again, you know, when we when we think about that, you know, why isn't there that global appetite for for another analgesic option when we look at this global menu of uh, of analgesia that we currently have? Yep. And that hasn't really changed. You know, the, the analgesic options haven't really changed in the past twenty years. Um, you know, if if we think about the, the different things that we have in the menu, you know, subcutaneous pethidine uh, or, or other opioids, morphine or, or, or diamorphine, you know, that we use in, in Northern Ireland. They all have their their um, their downsides, their side effects, you know, and with you know increasing literature surrounding the, the the bad side of nitrous oxide, you know, there needs to be another discussion about other analgesic options. Um, we know that mm-hmm. nitrous oxide is a, a, uh, has some use in, in obstetrics, but you know it's not the the sole analgesic option for for most women, yep. um, and uh, it's it's no one certainly within Northern Ireland and and, and Europe that. You know, up to fifty percent of women coming through the departments don't have neuroaxial blockade, or, or can't have, or don't want neuroaxial blockade. So, we need to come up with another viable option for for analgesia for these patients. Um, and and we think that that Remy fentanyl, certainly in our department or in in our institutions in Northern Ireland, fits fits the bill quite nicely. Um, so, the recipe that we use for Remy fentanyl, um, I suppose. Um, is is the main thing and the, the thing that we need to to nail home um, and and be uh, make make people aware of. Um, so you, you you have to have the right drug, uh, you have to have the right patient, you have to have the right environment, uh, and you have to stick to that recipe. You can't really deviate away from that recipe, um, mm-hmm. and and I think that's the real key to to the safe introduction of Remy fentanyl <coughs> into any department. Um, so. You know, for, first of all, I suppose we, we, sh- we should probably talk about Remy fentanyl and why <coughs> it. Um, why are we choosing Remy fentanyl? Uh, Remy fentanyl is it's nearly the perfect drug. Um, it's ultra short acting. It's a 
anadylopiperidine, and it's a pure mu opioid uh, agonist. Um, it has that ultra short half life of three to five minutes that's independent of, of the duration of infusion. Um, and, and we've found certainly within our departments that patients m- mobilize much more quickly, they're discharged much more, more quickly, and they're just back to themselves um, yep. compared to other analgesic options that, that, that we can offer, including you know, neuroaxial blockade. Um, and, and it's metabolized by those non specific esterases. Um, we know that it does cr- cross the placenta um, and uh, that it's safely metabolized by the neonate. Um, and as I said, it does have that predictable si- side effect profile. And, and often that's the, the thing that people worry about, the side effects that they're going to see with remifentanil. But a- as we we say to everyone in our departments, once you, you are aware of that side effect profile and the side effects that you're going to see in basically every single patient uh, and you, you know, you become used to those side effects uh, and, and how to treat them, then there's no issue with remifentanil yeah. uh, and the administration of it. Um, so the, the setup of, uh, of the drug and the administration of it, um, again, um, there's no real deviation from this. Uh, we um, have a, a standard protocol that we use, uh, and that's uh, two 2 milligram. uh uh, remifentanil ampules diluted in 100 mils of normal saline and that gives you 40 mics per mil uh, mm-hmm. and we give that via dedicated pump uh, with a two minute lockout um, and it's a default program that we don't deviate from um, now other literature in the past has discussed uh, the use of background infusions and um, titration of, of bolus doses to effect and, and Certainly in Northern Ireland, we've found that um, the use of uh, a background infusion doesn't improve efficacy and uh, only has uh, an, only shows an increase in the side effects seen. Um, so we know that that isn't beneficial. Um, we use a dedicated cannula, which is uh, a 22 or a 20 gauge, uh, and it has an anti-siphon and anti-reflux valve on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, again, the key to um, the introduction of this drug is the appropriate monitoring uh, and the appropriate uh, staff um, within the room at all times. Um, and, and there's no deviation from that. Um, then we, we need to move on to the, the, the patient. It has to be the right patient, the, the right choice of patient. Uh, so there's a number of contraindications to the use of remifentanil, uh, absolute and relative ones. So absolute contraindications w- would include significant allergy to opioid drugs and uh, multiple pregnancy. Uh, clinically, uh, those who are clinically assessed of having severe preeclampsia uh, and uh, the use of morphine within four hours or, or any other uh, opioids within four hours uh, and again the key uh, another key absolute contraindication to this is is the uh, limited availability of staff um, so there has to be one-to-one care available uh, at all times and uh, and often that's a, a reason why departments don't introduce um, remifentanil uh, I know it's a luxury certainly in the UK at the moment um, uh, yeah. to have the appropriate staff available at all times um, and, and often we see that um, departments struggle with uh, with a one-to-one patient ratio uh, patient-to-staff ratio and that's definitely a reason to stay away from it um, another absolute contraindication is the inability to cooperate uh, with or, or operate the, uh, the PCA 
uh, itself. There's a number of relative contraindications uh, that we see uh, that we uh, advocate, and that would be the uh, severe IUGR, the intrauterine growth uh, retardation, uh, excessively high or low BMI, obstructive sleep apnea, and severe respiratory or cardiac disease. Um, now, within these, uh, the absolute contraindications, the ones that that we really uh, um, push are, are the avoidance of opioids uh, within four hours. There's there's absolutely no movement on that, and um, the other one is, is limited staff. As I've said, um, there there can be no budging on uh, the level of, of uh, training that the staff member has and uh, the avail- avail- availability of staff members um, within the room. Uh, appropriate staff members to monitor the patient or to observe the patient. The one that we often get talked get asked about uh, in, in relative contraindications would be excessively high or low BMI. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's funny, um, you know, we all, we often worry, you know, with high BMI patients about airway obstruction, um, but although it's a relative contraindication, we. I wouldn't say we're more concerned about patients with a low BMI, but um, it certainly flags in my mind if there's a patient with a, a very low BMI who's looking to use remifentanil because I'm I'm, I'm worried about um, the excessive effects um, right. compared to someone with a high BMI. Generally, the, the effects of remifentanil, as I've said, there's that short acting that uh, prolonged airway obstruction isn't uh, isn't a necessary factor that that we would uh, see uh, on a day to day basis. Um, so. Low BMI almost concerns me more than high BMI, uh, to put it that way. Uh, but obviously, uh, you know, uh, excessively uh, de- excessive deviation from from normal is is something to be concerned about. Uh, as with with any uh, um, drug, the environment um, that you give the drug in is is key as well. So you need to make the patient aware of of remifentanil and. and what it's going to do to them and, and uh, the effect that it's going to have on, on, on not only them but their, their baby potentially uh, and we would always say to the, the patient that um, number one this is off licence use um, of a drug uh, and number two that um, it will cross the placenta but uh, we uh, we are we are aware that the this, this, the effects on the fetus uh, are very short acting and, um, and shouldn't have any long term uh, harm on the baby uh, obviously, there should be twenty four seven access to an anaesthetist on site, uh, and again, that's another stickler that um, departments often struggle with, um, uh, especially in, in the private community um, around the world. Um, now, key things: one to one training of, of staff at all times. So there must be adequately trained staff within the room who can deal with, as I said, the the the, the side effects that you're going to see from from these drugs. Yep. Um, and, and the patients must be appropriately monitored, so uh, oxygen levels must be um, observed at all times, but not necessarily continuous CTG if it's a low-risk pregnancy. Okay. Um, uh, and then other other obvious things include routine documentation of observations and the appropriate availability of oxygen and other uh, resource drugs. Um, as expected. Do you have naloxone in the room? I know that's one of our requirements. It's one of our uh, requirements yep. as well. So there yep. must be naloxone uh, okay. uh, available in the room uh, with the right equipment to draw it up and ad- administer it. Um, and, and as I said, the key the key to this is 
you don't deviate from the from the recipe that uh, that we use. Certainly in Northern Ireland, there's no movement on uh, on on either yeah, drug doses or yeah. What's the bonus dose? So it's forty mics, forty mics okay. with a two minute lockout. Okay, uh, and and as I said. Um, there's no movement. Um, yep. Some literature um, des- uh, describes other alternate doses. Um, m- you know the direction that research is going at the moment. You know there, there's talk of reducing doses, maybe to 30 mics or even 20 mics to avoid those predictable side effects that, that we've talked about. Um, but the use of a, a background infusion isn't uh, beneficial and doesn't improve it efficacy, so it should really be avoided. Um, so, you know. W- the, the the what I've talked about so far is, is basically you know how it's how it's worked in Northern Ireland and I'll, yep. I'll, although this is uh, mainly on um, it, it it's predominantly evidence based um, a lot of the the use of this drug has has come from experience but you know over the past couple of years um, there's there's been some pretty nice literature that's come out to back up the the, the practice that we've been uh, that we've been uh, doing in, in Northern Ireland. Um, so, um, the, the initial literature that came out in two thousand and fourteen from uh, Stocky uh, et al. Uh, anesthesia and analgesia. Um, it was it was probably the first one, the first randomised controlled trial that looked at remifentanil versus uh, an, another analgesic option, um, which in this uh, uh, which in this case was an epidural. Um, yep. And it obviously found that um, remifentanil was inferior to, at every time point uh, to neuraxial blockade, and, and we could have predicted this. Um, it was interesting that a secondary outcome that they looked at was safety, and, and they had significant concerns about the safety of remifentanil at this stage um, because they highlighted a number of significant apneic events um, and at that stage the author suggested that uh, apneic monitoring should actually be an essential part of uh, of administration or, or um, prescribing uh, yeah. remifentanil. So do they imply in capnography? Is that, is that what yeah, you Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at this early stage, you know, um, uh, although it was 2014 and, and in the Ulster Hospital, you know, it had been used, you know, for 10 years already at this stage. Um, s- some departments were still kind of finding their feet with it. And, and this is yep. a, a prime example of this. And um, there was a number of concerning uh, issues with, with remifentanil. So, you know, initial findings weren't reassuring, uh, if we yep. put it that way. Um, but, you know, moving on to 2016, um, Mark van der Velde and uh, IJOA, um collated um, a, a nice uh, evidence-based narrative review of 36 papers uh, that look, again looked at efficacy and safety. Uh, and, you know, in a positive way, he showed that Remy compared favourably with other systemic opioids, which was great, you know, for, yep. for labouring women who didn't want a neuraxial blockade. But again, it highlighted uh, worrying concerns about respiratory depression. Uh, and it included one case report of uh, an actual respiratory arrest. Um, and at this stage, uh, this paper suggested that um, Remy fentanyl shouldn't be a, a routine analgesic option for labouring women. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Uh, and I think that was, uh, you know, that was fair enough, given what you know what was coming out in the literature um, and seen in, in many departments um, around the world. Um, again, uh, this this paper highlighted that uh, although it was only mildly efficacious, um, uh, satisfaction rates were high, and the conversion rates um, 
from uh, an epidural um, to um, to an epidural uh, from Remy Fentanyl were low. Um, following following that in 2017, Cochrane came out with a, a lovely uh, review. Um, it was actually the third review um, on, on Remy Fentanyl, and it looked at 20, 20 trials uh, of this uh, this drug. Um, and it uh, was appropriately critical and sceptical um, about the current evidence because all the, the evidence that they found was low grade uh, and uh, they suggested that um, although Remy fentanyl was likely superior to other IM opioids um, uh, and would be inferior to neuraxial uh, um, blockade, um, they suggested that a, um, a full randomised controlled trial um, after analgesic request uh, would be required. Um, and then following on directly from that in 2018, we had the most, probably the, the, the best um, literature that we have now to date on Remy Fentanyl, and that was uh, published in the Lancet, uh, the Respite study, uh, which compared Remy Fentanyl to IM Pethidine. Um, and their primary outcome looked at uh, failure in, in analgesia measured by the conversion rate to an epidural. Yep. Uh, and, and they found that. Um, uh, uh, patients who had Remy fentanyl compared to pethidine, um, if you had pethidine, you're twice as likely to convert to an epidural um, versus uh, Remy fentanyl PCA. Uh, and, and they also found that women, uh, the, the pain scores coming from uh, women were uh, much improved um, and that the overall satisfaction rate from women using uh, Remy fentanyl PCAs was uh, was much higher. Um the the downsides of this or the negative outcomes from this regarding Remy were that uh, patients who uh, use Remy fentanyl were much more likely to desaturate to under ninety four degrees <coughs> or ninety four percent and therefore require supplemental oxygen. But as I said before, um, once you know the, the predictable side effects that you're going to see with Remy fentanyl, um, this isn't anything to be concerned about. Uh, now, on a positive note, they, they discovered no significant difference in respiratory depression uh, under eight breaths per minute between the two groups, so pethidine, I, uh, I am pethidine versus PCA. Yep. Um, and obviously this, this was a much bigger study uh, than Stocky et al. Um, with, you know, 10 times uh, more um, patients and therefore the, the evidence was, was much more robust. Um, uh, so the... Uh, one of the, the outcomes from this study or, or um, the details that came from this study was that it was reaffirmed that there should be one-to-one care at all times. Um, if we uh, if we move on again further uh, to 2019, um, uh, uh, again in IJOA, um, this highlighted three papers, um, uh, and this was real-life data, uh, not just from RCTs. Um, so the the first one was the Remy PCA Safe Network, um, which is a predominantly European ner- network, um, with a few other uh, global centres involved uh, in- included, uh, and um, they looked really at, uh, at six years worth of data, uh, and f- f- uh, found that um, there was no maternal serious adverse events, um, which was a, a great result. Um, they did find that there was zero point three percent. Uh, neonatal uh, adverse events, um, but this was well within the expected range, and they concluded that uh, the uh, adverse events due to Remy fentanyl, uh, fentanyl were extremely rare, rare and typically short-lasting. Uh, mm-hmm. um, 
and they uh, sorry the second paper um, that um, that came from 2019 in IGO was actually a, a, a re- retrospective questionnaire that was sent out to 51 hospitals um, in the Netherlands uh, now interestingly these showed uh, a slightly different outcome uh, and, and more concerning outcomes they had five cases of prolonged apnea um, which which wasn't very reassuring um, but it was noted that these uh, episodes of apnea occurred uh, with background infusions, and as I've said before, okay. um, we uh, even at, at this stage the author suggested that uh, a background infusion shouldn't have been appropriate. Um, and as I've said, we find in, in certainly in Northern Ireland that the addition of a background infusion only in, uh, increases side effects and doesn't improve efficacy. So uh, we know now that uh, that brings no benefit. Um, there was a, a you know, very concerningly, a single uh, incidence of, of cardiac arrest in, in one of these patients. Uh, the patient did make a full recovery, but then on further investigation of uh, the administration of, uh, of Remy fentanyl to this patient, it was found that there was 10 mils of Remy fentanyl missing from the infusion pump. Um, so this is probably due to pump malfunction or administration. Um, and this really highlights at this stage, um, certainly that, that single incident highlights that uh, and reminds us that Remy fentanyl is an extremely potent drug and not a drug to be messed around with. Uh, and we uh, it highlights the, the need um, for um, strict um, protocols throughout um, the administration yep. of it and, and strict monitoring and training of our staff. Um, so uh, it, it really acts as a... a, a um, an alarm bell that um, that we we you know we can't take this for granted. The administration of this drug it does come with risks as as all our drugs do come with. The last patient, or the last paper that uh, that came out in two thousand nineteen was, uh, funnily enough, a, a paper from the Ulster Hospital uh, itself uh, with Helen Murray and David yep. Hughes and the rest of the team there, uh, and they looked retrospectively at the at the first ten years of use of their drug, um, and they you know they. They uh, prescribed the drug over 8,000 times at that time um, and they found that, you know, obviously most women um, uh, still required supplemental oxygen and also most of these people or most of these women um, required Entonox as well. Um, So as we now know, the efficacy of this drug uh, isn't optimal, um, but the uh, satisfaction rates are are, are still great. Um, They... Interestingly, really, they found that they had a really high rate of normal vaginal delivery compared to neuraxial and other um, analgesic options, and the conversion rate uh, was also low. Uh, conversion rate to epidural of around eight to nine percent, um, and the PCA patients uh, had the lowest rate of admission to NICU. The, the deliveries. Um, Within this department, so that's another uh, another additional benefit that, that may need explored further. Um, as I said, the, the effects on on neonates of Remy fentanyl is uh, is well described, um, but um, isn't anything necessarily to worry about with normal APGAR rates uh, uh, in Remy fentanyl uh, patients compared to neuraxial or, yep. or okay. other opioid uh, analgesic options. Um, so at this stage, the, um, the editorial that accompanied it, uh, this uh, lot of papers in IGOA um, highlighted that Remy fentanyl was uh, most probably the, the best alternative uh, to an epidural. 
uh, if a patient couldn't or didn't want to have uh, an epidural. Uh, but again, reiterated the, the importance of, of sticking to your protocols and, and your safety measures, having your, your safety measures implemented. So I suppose, at, you know, at this stage, we need to think about where we are and, and safety-wise, we know that there's a low incidence of uh, adverse events with with Remifentanil PCA and, and that's been highlighted that, that the paper uh, by the papers that I've just discussed. Um, we know that these adverse events are rare and they're, they're transient. Um, I suppose the question could be asked and will be asked in the future, I think, uh, can we reduce the bolus dose to 30 or, or, or 20 mics? Um, uh, and will that improve the the side effect profile of this this drug? Efficacy, efficacy. We know that it, we know that it compares favorably with other systemic opioids. Uh, we know that it is a, a useful alternative to regional anesthesia, uh, and we know that although the efficacy uh, isn't optimal, the the satisfaction rates are are excellent. Um, uh, coming from women, yes. Um, now staffing. Uh, that's that's as I've said throughout this um, talk. It's the the one stickler, the the one problem that um, that we all face. Uh, and there's no movement on the one to one monitoring required um, f- for these patients. As I've said, it's an extremely uh, potent drug that um, isn't to be messed around with. Uh, and the key to the implementation of this uh, protocol or, or the use of this drug within any department is the fami- familiarity with it and the familiarity with the side effect profile that you're going to see. Um, Evidence wise. We're getting better evidence as we go year on year. Um, as I said, from 2014 to, to, to now, we've we've got some great quality uh, papers coming out, as well as real life data coming from not only the Ulster Hospital but other centres around the world. Um, uh, so, yeah, we're we're really moving forward with the, with the use of Remy fentanyl, and I think it has a, a bright future uh, as an analgesic option. Um, I think to conclude. It, it's never gonna, it's never gonna take the title of you know the gold standard analgesic option for for a woman, but it, I think it has a, a place on that as analgesic menu as I as I discussed. Um, you know, I, I have a picture of my my two kids here, and and I put that on, on my slide to remind me that, uh, you know, for my from for the birth of my two kids, my wife had an epidural, uh, and if I was having a child, I would want an epidural. It's it's the business. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, but not a dural puncture. But not a dural <laughs> puncture, or, or the other side effects. Sure. Um, but uh, there is a place for for remifentanil PCA um, in certain subsets of um, of, of labouring women, and I, I think it, it should be on the menu in every department. Okay. Thanks, Mike. I try. I um, I think that was a really good talk, and I tried not to interrupt because I went, uh, wanted you to sort of get a bit of practice but I've been writing uh, you, you saw me at one stage scrabbling in my bag to get a pen yeah. <laughs> so I was trying to write down some questions um, so I don't have very good memory I forget them straight away but one thing I uh, noticed you didn't um, uh, do is give us a sort of a description as a, as a trainee working in uh, one of the hospitals in uh, Northern Ireland what's life like and how does you know how does um, you know covering labour ward how's it, how does it feel different what was the experience, you know, with this obviously being such a predominant um, type of analgesic? So, uh, mm. can you just describe that to us? Like, um, say, for example, you, you're covering um, labour ward overnight. You know, yeah. How much of you, as the anaesthetic person, this is all led by you, and do you have to go down and put the drip in and set it up? And how long does it take? And yeah, what's the environment like? It's like 
and it's nice talking about all the studies, but like obviously you guys have got a lot, so much experience with it that the culture and the whole hmm. um, the um, familiarity with it means that it's probably a lot different to some of these sort of a, a bit more sort of um, formal studies where. The yeah. number of patients going through in 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 the in the labour wards where they did the, the formal studies is probably a lot lower. Yeah, it, it's funny, um, you know, throughout throughout training, certainly in, in Northern Ireland and the UK, you know, you get wrapped up, you know, in your in your your daily business and you're trying to push through exams and, and trying to tick the boxes of uh, in your portfolio that you don't really necessarily fully understand what happens around the world, and you read these yeah. papers about you know. You know different techniques that are used, but it, it wasn't really till till I arrived here um, in in Western Australia in this great department that I I understood how different we were in Northern Ireland. Um, yeah. You know, on a on a daily basis, uh, you know, at least uh, I would I would be called at least you know, once or twice in a shift to prescribe revving fentanyl. Um, so it's just like like. Just like getting, getting uh, one or two epidural requests, you just do it every, oh. t- every time you're on labour ward. You, you're yeah, it yeah, up. yeah, yeah. It's it, it, it's um, it's it's a normal part of life. Um, it, it's it doesn't it doesn't alarm us or worry us. You know, it, conversely, it, it's actually uh, it's one of those nice bleeps or phone calls that you get in the middle of the night. You know, yeah. because you. You, you know, you know, you're going to be up for half an hour, forty five minutes or an hour. You know, trying to put an epidural in. Um, if you get a bleep about that, but when you get a bleep about it, uh, Remy fentanyl, you know, you're going to have it set up within five to ten minutes. You know, you're going to observe the patient for another five or ten minutes, and you'll be you'll be back in your bed, most probably. You know, uh, you know, thirty minutes, forty five minutes after the bleep, uh, yeah. and you know that the patient's going to be happy, um, uh, and and the midwife is going to be happy in the room as well. Um, so it, it, it's. It's lovely to prescribe it because it's a simple setup. You can have it set up within five minutes. Um, you you can see the effects immediately whenever you give it to the, the patient and, and they initiate it um, and you hang around. And often I hang around for an extra five or ten minutes just because you see such a transformation in the patient. You know, they... they uh, Often they'll they'll just nod and smile, um, and, and and you can see the change in the, the partner as well. You know the relief that that they see whenever they, they've their, their their wife has got some or, or partner's got some nice analgesia on board. It just takes the, the stress out of the room. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, and as I said, um, we always warn the patient of the, the side effects that they're going to see, and one of those is obviously a res- reduced respiratory rate. And I would highlight that to everyone in the room, including the labouring woman, the, the midwife, and the partner. <clears throat> and I, um, it, it it it's obviously a sign that the drug's working, um, but it's a, a a good sign for me that um, you know you see that respiratory rate fall and <clears throat> the shoulders kind of drop in the patient, and then they just get that kind of you know that relaxed kind of smile on their face, and they're in the middle of their contraction, but they are just cruising through the. Con- and often they'll use a bit of Anthonox um, uh, to supplement their analgesia, uh, but that you know that's nothing compared to what they were doing. You know, ten minutes before you yeah, walked into okay, the room. Okay, so it's nowhere near as much heavier use. It's it, it rapidly. It's a you know significant it, transformation. So the other thing is, uh, so what's the culture like amongst the midwifery staff and uh, just generally in the community amongst women now? I mean, it's, uh, this has been a sort of part of obstetric care in most of the units mm. in Northern Ireland. So it sounds you were telling me um, previously that, that you know women in the community know that it's an option and they they even choose their hospital. Yeah, and 
what, how do the midwives feel? Because, you know, I feel like um, it is a bit more labour-intensive, you know, one-to-one. It's, so is it a bit more work for them than an epidural? Were they, do, what, what is the general feeling that you had or impression you got? I, uh, I, 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 it sounds like it should be more labour-intensive, but from, from my perspective, speaking to midwives, midwives love patients who are on remifentanil who prescribe remifentanil is that um, just because they're familiar with it i know that here like sometimes the midwives are a bit sort of well occasionally i've, I've got yeah. like that because they don't really they've never seen it they're, they're a bit anxious yeah i think that plays a big part i think uh, as i said um in in the talk you know familiarity with yeah prescribing pr- familiarity with the side effect profile um just you know uh, being used to having it in the department um, once that that's there then um, the, the worry and concern about um, having patients on remifentanil disappears so it's uh, a bit of a chicken and egg scenario if you don't do it very often exactly then you're not familiar with it and you're not good at it and everyone's anxious I think that's where the danger creeps in so the more you do it the better you get the safer it is exactly do you think that's probably a, a I think it's it's not for the occasional prescriber I don't think it's it's safe to use it in a department that that would prescribe it every couple of months or isn't familiar with prescribing it or um, is the, the midwifery team aren't f- familiar using it or yeah. or seeing the side effects because that that puts everyone on edge um, and that's where there's the potential for, for problems to creep in. Once it's initiated within a department and the staff are adequately trained within that department to use it, um, there's only positive things really come from it and that's I describe it as a, a kind of positive spiral that the staff talk to each other about, you know, how good it is. Then they tell the patients how good it is. And then the patients, after their delivery, go home and say to their friends about it. And before you know it, people come into the department asking for it. Yes. And certainly that's what I've found in other centres in Northern Ireland. Um, um, patients would, would move from one department to another, you know, delivery after delivery looking you know asking for Remy fentanyl if, if one department you know doesn't use it or um or, or stops using it um so it's it's a really interesting dynamic that we have in northern ireland it's it's uh it, it's it's funny you know um there's some departments within northern ireland um are 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 in their early life of of prescribing Remy fentanyl um, and they're still in that upward curve of yeah you know, telling everyone about it and the, the rates of Remy fentanyl use are still increasing and then they kind of plateau um, and then they kind of find this sweet spot of some people within the department don't necessarily like it as much as others and, and they would, you know, tell people about epidurals more than Remy fentanyl and it's it's funny the, the, the communication dynamics that go on within departments and go, go on within communities about these yeah, kind of drugs yeah. um, but certainly... You know, the majority of the population within the department and, and the female population in Northern Ireland are, I, I think, very positive about Remy fentanyl. And just a, a couple more questions because I know we've uh, been going for a while. So I wasn't sure. So when you have a Remy fentanyl PCH, does a neonatologist or a paediatrician have to be present for the for the birth? No. no? Okay. no. That's good. Because um, obviously that would be a barrier to, yeah. to its use. Yeah. No. No. Um, no and do the, do the midwives have some sort of credentialing? So, like, do they have to get signed off that they know how to monitor someone? Because obviously the monitoring of a neuraxial is all about sort of usually cardiovascular and blood pressure mm. and things. That's uh, completely different when you're looking at a drug that affects the respiratory system. No. So I mean, how do they? How do they? You know, say, for example, you're in a department, you get some some new staff who 
who are you know, junior or come from somewhere else in the world where they're not familiar with it. Yeah, so it's Do a they sta- have to get signed off for anything? It's kind of a standard part of the induction of any right. new staff member within the department. You know, they'll, as they would receive training on how to manage a patient with a neuraxial blockade, they receive training on, on how to manage someone okay. with... Okay, so it's just part of the sort of induction standard, package. Yep. Standard, yeah. Um, and what about hyperalgesia? So, so we, you know, there's this mm. thing in the, the literature about um, when we use it in an, general anesthesia. Yeah. That patients have, um, you know, downregulation of their receptors, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. and then they have worse pain when we stop using the drug. Yeah. Uh, and is that an issue? We haven't, we, we haven't um, seen any kind of evidence of that, which is, it's an interesting um it's an interesting thing that we haven't seen anything at, at all of that. The, the, I suppose another another um, thing that we see with with Remy Fentanyl, as I said before, these patients are up mobilising so quickly, yeah, and they're discharged, you know, generally quicker than than they would be if they had a neuraxial blockade. That it's it's often more difficult to get feedback from them. Um, but the feedback that we've got from from patients who, who receive Remy Fentanyl is. is you know, extremely positive, and no one has really described this hyperalgesic effect at all. Okay, that's good. And so, so the other thing I was thinking about in my head is like imagining myself in a department that uses this a lot more. You know, often we put epidurals in, um, and uh, and often women end up coming to theatre either for a cesarean or sometimes for some postpartum complication. Mm. Um, and obviously, having an epidural is efficacious because we usually top that up. Mm. Um, would you obviously you these these women who are on Remy Fenton are going to come without a block in place? You mm-hmm. normally, so do you, did you get the impression there's a lot more spinals done in, in your units um, because there's less women coming to theatre with epidurals? Um, and yeah. that not necessarily an issue. I mean, doing a spinal doesn't take that long. Yeah, no. The, but certainly in an emergency, you know, sometimes um, it's nice to have an epidural to top up, and that's sometimes we, we would even like in you know, this the morbidly obese woman prefer to have a working yep. epidural so that we know that you know we're not spending 50 minutes trying to get a spinal into someone who's really tricky yeah in an I, emergency that sort of thing so there's other things why you might prefer yeah uh, epidurals or neuraxials in labor I, I think that's that's partially um that partially comes down to the experience of the department within the department of using remy fentanyl and the uh, cherry picking of pa- the appropriate patient yes. to have Remy fentanyl, yep. um, and in those early days, um, as I as I kind of said, um, Remy fentanyl is, is um, uh, uh, midwifery staff will, will you know kind of not push Remy fentanyl, but say, oh, you know, Remy fentanyl is a great option, you know, to every single patient. Whereas the the departments that have been using it for a longer duration have a bit more experience with it. And just to know when to... When to, to advise okay. it and when not to, you know, when okay. it's a good choice and when it's not a good choice. And that comes down to midwifery experience or uh, anaesthetic experience as well yeah. um, yep. whenever you're prescribing the drug. Um, but certainly, uh, yeah, back home, I would I would have experienced more, more spinals, more uh, cases that needed to come to theatre acutely and didn't have a neuraxial. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, Did you think it was an issue or not really? No, no, I, I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't really find. Um, I wouldn't say that I, I, I didn't done more GA sections because of uh, because less people had epidurals. Um, yeah, sure. I'm not really. It's, yeah. I'm just uh, obviously there's no. That's not a. Uh, it's just anecdote and general impression. But yeah, I'd say I would say we we probably do, did more. You know, kind of single shot or emergency. You know. Uh, neuraxial blockades 
because of the the decreased number of of epidurals in, in place potentially. Yeah. I'm just trying to think about it. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? I yeah. mean, the the patient population is probably slightly different. King Edward's pretty skewed, but um. yeah, King Edward's <laughs> is different. Yeah, yeah. Um, so notice that the, this is my last comment. The, the one of the contraindications you said was preeclampsia and multiple gestation, mm. which surprised me because um, preeclampsia with low platelets. You know, I would have thought remifentanil would be a good option. Uh, What's the reason for that? Is that because the the epidurals or the neuroxials help control the blood pressure better? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, so sort of a relative contraindication, more than an absolute, I suppose. Yeah, we, yeah, we, we, as a, as a department, you know, that's a departmental choice. But um, overall, it's it's just thought that patients who are preeclamptic for for blood pressure control um, and for their you know, potential avoidance of a GA, uh, yeah, movement towards uh, the, uh, you know, yep. uh, cesarean section. It's probably better to have a neuroaxial on board. Uh, uh, In the multiple gestation, is it just? Well, yeah, that's partially because of um, you know, uh, low gestational weight. You know, you know, okay. a small baby on board, um, and so um, you think the smaller babies are maybe more susceptible to the respiratory effects of it, or potentially, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, Although you're likely to have more likely to have a neonatologist um, present in an IGR or a multiple gestation delivery. I would have thought. Yeah, you, you will, but yeah, would, okay. it wouldn't be something that. Yeah, <laughs> and then the the other the other thing with uh, multiple gestation is again more likely to move towards theatre and therefore um, requires a situation. Uh, and also, the, of course, I've forgotten that, so so if, if they have trouble delivering the second child, exactly, yeah. they often want to do um, manoeuvres to change its um, presentation. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know why I didn't think of that. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's probably the main reason. Any final comments? We've, we've been going for 44 minutes. That's quite a long, it's quite a long episode, know, but it's, it's all gold. It's all very, very interesting for us uh, here to hear yeah. what, what you probably thought was um, just everyday life. On well, this, as I said, yeah, no, it's um, it's great. It's just great to, to see the kind of different practice over here, and um, I don't know. I I think it would fit really well into this department. Certainly, in, in certain you know subpopulation or pop- yep. members of the population. Um, so it'll be. It's just going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few years and, and whether it's it's taken up. Um, in, in different places around the world, I, I think it does have a, a role, as I've said. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's a really interesting topic. Yep, it sure is. Okay, well, thank you. We'll, we'll finish it there. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you. Okay, cheers, Thanks, Roger. listening everyone please go to the itunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it write a review this will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the itunes menu if you're also interested please go to our website at www.opsandgynequickcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to see you again next time the opsandgyne quick care podcast would like to acknowledge the wadjuk people as the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced. We recognise their continued connection to the land and waters of this beautiful place. We pay our respects to elders in past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people.